farmer goes out and to his barn and finds there that one of his cows is ready to, ready to bear a calf. And so he's assisting there, and as any good farmer would do. And as he looks over his shoulder, he realizes that his six-year-old son is watching intently, just watching this thing. And all of a sudden, the farmer thinks, oh, no, at six years old, I'm going to have to explain to this young kid the birds and the bees. Oh, no. And it goes on, you know, the labor goes on, and finally the calf is delivered and everything. And he goes, you know, I'm going to just play it smart here. I'm going to, I'll just wait. And if he asks a question, then I'll respond. But if not, I'm just going to let it slide. And so he goes, you know, he gets all done, cleans up, and goes over to his son and, and is compelled to ask his son, you know, do you have any questions? And, the, and he, he braces for the question, and he holds his breath, and, and the son goes, yeah, I have a question, Dad. He goes, well, son, what is it? How fast was that calf going when it ran into that cow? <laughs> might take a minute. might take a minute. But, you know, when, 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 when children are born, you know, moms, you don't get a chance to choose when that happens, do you? I remember Cindy, when, when she had Jenny, she had to have a cesarean section. So we scheduled it, you know, scheduled cesarean section. And you go into the hospital and you have your baby and it's scheduled. And so when Jared comes along, you know, a couple of years later, uh, we schedule that one. And, and lo and behold, Cindy goes into labor before the time for the, for the delivery. And so, again, you know, we didn't get a chance to choose that, you know, and good for that, huh? But birthing is kind of an interesting thing. We're going to come to a point in the book of Acts today where we see the birth of the church. If you have ever wondered, when did the church start? It's right here in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Now, before that, there was no church, New Testament church, as we know it. Back before that, it was the synagogue, the temple, uh, Judaism, and the worship there. But now we're going to see the formation of the church. And the church is a powerful thing. I, I believe there's nothing better in the whole world than the church. The church, when it's at its best, is the best thing there is in the world. But when the church is at its worst, there's probably nothing worse than the church. And so one of the things I'm so thankful for is this church. You guys have been terrific people. I was just talking with, uh, with some people that have been in our church, and, and they testified to her about how much our little church has meant to them and how it had responded to them in a really difficult way. I thought, you know, that's the church. And I always love hearing stories like that and seeing events like that and just being able to sit back and go, you know, that's really what the church do, the formation of the church. And we're going to see that the church is nothing without power. Okay, the church is nothing without power. Maybe hear a good story or two and maybe a little story from the Bible. Uh, but if it doesn't impact and change your life, if it, you don't leave with go back to the very beginning, the roots of the church in Acts chapter 2 and find out about this empowerment. Because in your outline there, there's a place for you to fill this in. Empowering filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit of God is where power comes from. Short of that, all you have some wishes, you might have some good feelings, but without the power of God living in your life, you really don't have enough power to overcome the things that you face. And so I'm going to break this down into, into three elements. And the first one is the evidence of the Holy Spirit that we find here in Acts chapter 2. The evidence. And here's what it says in verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Okay, and we're talking about this here. Suddenly... 
a sound like a, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Let's go all the way back here. And it says that this is the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, you know what the day of Pentecost is? It's 50 days after Passover. 50 days and thusly Pentecost. 50 days after Passover. And so we take those two events, Pentecost and Passover. Now, Passover, remember, is the time that the Jewish people celebrated the great deliverance that God provided for them in Egypt. When he came and he said, okay, there's going to be a, a, the firstborn of every family in Egypt is going to die. And so he said, in order to protect yourselves, what I want you to do is sacrifice a lamb, and I want you to take that blood, and I want you to put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your house. Okay? That way, when this death angel comes, it'll know to pass over. Okay? It'll pass over you, and that's what Passover is all about. Jewish people celebrate it all the way till now. And so that's what Passover is. Now, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. It's one of the big celebrations of the Old Testament. It's the celebration of first fruits. Now, because they were the firstborn of every, every family would die, the firstborn son of every family would die, and now Pentecost comes and we're celebrating new life in the harvest that is be, being reaped at the time. So 50 days. Uh, it, but now, it's interesting, new life association of God coming into the lives of people. Now, how is it that we have evidence of this Holy Spirit? And we see here in the passage, first of all, they heard the Spirit. Now, they didn't really hear the Spirit, but they heard evidence of the Spirit. Notice what it sounds. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay? This violent wind, they hear this sound. I don't know if you've ever been in a hurricane or in a tornado or anything, but it's kind of eerie, the sound that it makes. I remember one time we were in... Missouri, and we went camping with my mom and dad down in the Spring River, and it's in this little kind of valley-like thing, and at night, uh, it starts blowing like crazy, and a little tornado went right up that little ravine there, broke off some tree branches, put one through my uncle's windshield, and it was really kind of scary. We're in this little trailer, you know, my parents had a camping trailer, and it's, it's all over the place, and for me, kid from California, I'm thinking this is kind of exciting, you know, and I, you know, I, it's kind of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, I come from earthquakes, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, and, and let me tell you, tornadoes are not like earthquakes. Uh, my mom, in fact, the, the time before when we went and visited, we just arrived at our house and the, the tornado sirens went off and I'm just, hey, that's, you know, doopity doo da, you know, and, I, and I'm just, she says, hey, the, we don't have a, a, a basement. But the people across the street said, anytime that, that, that goes off, we can go over to their house and go in their basement. And so my mom is just running like crazy. And I'm just lollygagging, you know, because I'm from California. I don't know any better. And uh, she's, hurry, 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 hurry. Because tornadoes, when they come, they are alarmingly violent. And, uh, you know, I know that now, so I would probably hurry now. But uh, it was interesting because it made this huge wind. I mean, this sound, it's like a freight train coming right past your house. And it's, and it's interesting. So that, that's what they heard. Now, it, it, was it a real wind? Probably not. But it was the sound like that. It was a sound like that, which a sound of wind without wind would be even more alarming. Signaling something special is happening here. Something out of the ordinary. 
Okay, so that's the first evidence. The second evidence is they saw the Spirit. Not really the Spirit, but they saw evidence of the Spirit. Notice what it says here in verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Now, Luke is the author here. And, you know, we think quite literally. In fact, I'm a quite literal thinker. When I hear tongues of fire, I'm thinking, you know, a tongue of fire. You know, and it's gone. But it probably wasn't like that. But he's using some words that best describe the event that happened because there's no words to describe it because it's never happened before. So he says there were tongues and kind of like fire that separated and it came to rest on each one of the apostles. Now that, to me, signals something alarming again, something very special, something very um, uh, unusual. And so here he, he hears it, they, or they hear it, they see it, and then finally there's this other result, this evidence of the Holy Spirit. It says, it came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, now they voice it. They spoke by the Spirit. They spoke by the Spirit. They hear it, they see it, they speak it. Now, to me, that says something alarming, something unusual has happened here, something quite extraordinary, and something that should be noticed. In fact, the visual, the sound, and the the evidence of speaking says, wow, there's something really incredible that has happened here. Now, let's, let's go to the second thing here, because the second thing is really important, too, the effects of the Holy Spirit. In each one of our lives, if you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God lives in you. The Holy Spirit has come to take up residence within you. Now, this is something that has never happened in history before Acts chapter 2. Before Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We hear about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the, one of the key passages are when Saul, the king of Israel, the very first king of Israel, had the Holy Spirit resting upon him, but not dwelling within him, resting upon him, empowering him to do some stuff, to be the king and to have wisdom and do all that. But all of a sudden, he, he messes up. And it says that there's this young upstart David that comes along. And the Holy Spirit leaves King Saul and rests upon, doesn't indwell, but rests upon David. So we see the Holy Spirit there, and we see the Holy Spirit giving advice, doing stuff, but not quite like what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Because now we see the predecessor of the Spirit living within each one of the followers of Jesus Christ, indwelling us, never leaving us. Now in Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit, the Spirit of God, identifies with your spirit, the spirit of your being, that you are children of God. Okay, There's an identification of the Spirit there, and you have a spirit within you, and, and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, and therefore has this identification factor. It also says that the role of the Holy Spirit is to guide you into all truth. So as you come to learn stuff at church, as you come to read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit's job is to help you get a hold of that, understand it, apply it, and use it in your daily life. So now the effects of the Holy Spirit. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, why were they there? It was Pentecost. And when Pentecost comes, all the people come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. It would be like us. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to go to Bethlehem to celebrate Christmas? You know, that would be pretty cool, I think. 
You know, I, I don't know what Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem does, you know, special events or anything like that. But it would be pretty cool, cool to go there and celebrate Christmas because that's where Jesus was born. And maybe retrace some of those things that we read about in the Bible. But now, when it comes to Jerusalem, that's where the Jews gathered for all of their festivals. And Pentecost is one of the big festivals that celebrates the gathering of the first fruits. Okay, When they first start gathering the fruit from the vine, uh, the, the figs, all the stuff, they would celebrate and have a big conclave there in Jerusalem. So they're all there, God-fearing Jews staying in Jerusalem for every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, now what sound did they hear? The sound of this rushing wind, okay? A crowd came together in bewilderment. Now, why were they bewildered? And the sound that they heard was what? Not just the rush of the wind, but they heard the apostles speaking in tongues. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in church and talked about speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's kind of spooky. I remember growing up in church thinking, oh, speaking in tongues, that's just kind of weird. Okay? But now, note, we're going to get a handle on it today. Uh, they were in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, what was so alarming about that? How many of you speak more than one language? Okay, yeah, a couple of you. Uh, I, I speak baby and I speak adult. You know, <laughs> I know how to whine, I know how to cry, and I know how to demand stuff. So, you know, I, I've got that covered. Um, and I do speak a little bit of Spanish and I speak a little bit of French. Uh, I can say we. Oui. Yeah, and petite. You know, I I know all that stuff. Um, Now, I'll tell you, where did I learn to speak French? I learned to speak French from my friend. Uh, We used to go ice skating. We played hockey, and we'd go to the Republic sessions, just skate and stuff. And he says, oh, those girls over there, uh, they speak French. They're from France. I said, really? And he had taken French, you know, in high school. And he says, here, I want you to go up and say this. And so he, I, I practiced and practiced and practiced. Je pense que vous êtes très jolie. Je vous aime, mademoiselle. Any French speakers here? It means, I think you're very pretty and I love you. <laughs> that was the first mistake. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, he, he was no longer my friend after that. But, you know, I, so I, I speak multiple languages. Uh, you know, I can say burrito. And, uh, you know, I know all this. I know all this. I can order food and I can find a bathroom. And so those are the two things you need to know. But these guys heard people, heard the apostles. Now, where are the apostles from? They're Galileans, right? Now, what are Galileans known for? Not much. Okay, they're really known. They're really kind of the rednecks of the of the Eastern world. Okay, they're they're just kind of the hicks. They're the, you know, I don't mean that derogatorily to any redneck. Here. Yeah, we live in a very sensitive culture today. I want you to know. Very sensitive culture. But they were, the, they were the, the people on the other side of the tracks, the people that you know, were not known for being well-educated, okay? And so they were amazed because they could hear them speaking their own language. Now, how many languages are represented here? Okay, they were saying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So you can imagine, these guys are speaking some languages that are not common to their native tongue. And so these guys that hear this are utterly amazed. And they asked, aren't, the, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, okay? You know, in other words, we know that they're not the sharpest uh, pencil in the box. So then how is it, and somebody probably read, yeah, they are, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Now here's the language, here's the, here's the native tongues. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, 
uh, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Okay, so now, the first thing is that these guys speak a language that they don't know. Now, that would be like you going somewhere, traveling to some country, uh, going to Vietnam and being able to speak Vietnamese. Now, I, Jared had a friend that was from Vietnam. And this kid, I'll tell you, uh, I couldn't understand a word he said, even though he was speaking English. And uh, I remember he came up to me one day and he says, And I said, his name was Hong. I said, Hong? What? And I could tell he's asking a question. And I said, Hong? And say that again. And I go, ah, oh, man, I, I, you know, I want to help you out here. Uh, say that again. And he said it again. And, and Jared, my son, you know, they're probably six years old, seven years old. My, my son Jared looks at me and he says, he wants a drink of water. <laughs> I said, got it. You know, but I couldn't understand anything. Now, that would be like me being able to understand Hong in Vietnamese and being able to articulate back to him, oh, yeah, I'll get you a drink of water, Hong, no problem. That, that, that is not my native tongue. Now, that doesn't happen naturally, does it? These guys didn't study Rosetta Stone. They didn't go to school. They didn't do anything. They just all of a sudden are filled with the Holy Spirit and are empowered to do something that is quite unnatural for them. Okay, so they spoke in tongues. Now, what is, they spoke in foreign languages. Um, and it's kind of interesting that the, guy, the people understood what they were saying. You know, they, sometimes you can hear me speak Spanish, maybe. And if you speak Spanish or if you're a Spanish speaker, you say, well, that accent is just, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand some of the words you're saying. But these guys didn't have any trouble at all because they could articulate it perfectly. It's kind of like uh, Kent Graham. He was uh, a, a professor at Wheaton College. And uh, he had uh, scored some papers and he wrote some comments on them. And so he turned the papers back, and this is before the advent of computers and typing. They just hand-wrote the stuff. And he turned the papers back, and this, this one student looks at his paper, and he says, man, I, you know, I got a, I got a, a C minus, you know, and, and there's some explanation written there. And one word, and he's trying to figure it out. And so he asks the professor, he says, uh, you know, Dr. Graham, uh, what, what does this say? And so Dr. Graham takes a paper, and he goes, oh, man, I don't know. You know, he looks at it. He wrote it. And he's looking at it. And he goes, mm, mm. And he finally came to the conclusion that it says, oh, now I remember. Your handwriting is really poor. And I wrote illegible on there. <laughs> you know, sometimes we need some clear articulation. And that's what the <laughs> apostles were able to do. They clearly articulated what was going on. And they were, were understood. Now, uh, the, the languages were recognized immediately. Now, what's the response of the people? Some of the people were amazed. Okay? Some people were amazed. Now, like I said, Galileans were not known for their higher education. And so to be able to speak all these different languages, and not just one other language, but all these different languages, and we enumerated all the people and their languages, they, they, they were recognized. Uh, and they turned out, they, they were just amazed. Now, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's something I didn't have a fill-in for you, but you might want to jot this down. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you have the empowerment, all of a sudden, your eyes turn outward. Your focus turns outward. And your concern is for other people, not for yourself. 
And that's what happened with the apostles. They were concerned about these people that were there. And they said, man, we've got a captive audience here. We have people from all over the world coming across Jerusalem here. And we can speak the word of God to them. Boom. And they did it. They were concerned about other people. It's kind of like the minister that was on a jetliner and they're going through some really turbulent air. And the lady next to him, they had some conversation before and she knew that he was a, a minister. And she says, oh, you know, don't you think you could pray and do something about this weather? And he says, ma'am, I'm just a salesperson. I'm not in management. <laughs> Sometimes when we get focused and we get empowered, what do we want to do? We want to become the managers of the world. We want to be the managers of the world. And we forget that our main task is not managing the world, but our, our, our real job is to share with the world or be a salesperson sharing the word of God with people that can be transformed by it. Don't try to manage the world. And so what do we get involved in? You know, when we try to manage the world, we try to do what? We get involved with politics and we say this should happen and that should happen and this goes on and that goes on and we need to do this and we need to do that so that we can manage the world. Now, I say the worse the world is, the better our sales should be. You know, the worse the world is and the more desperate it becomes, the more unsettled it is, the better our sales. Because Jesus is the answer to all of that. And so therefore, make sure that you get on the right side of that. Number three, the third thing I want to talk about real briefly here today is the explanation of what did happen and what will happen when people are filled with the Spirit of God. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we see kind of a turn here in verses 12 and 13. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now, there were some other people, and this is where you have to get here so you can get to the explanation. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. In other words, they're drunk. You know, they're just babbling. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever been around somebody like that, but, you know, some people... Have you ever made fun of somebody that was drunk? Be honest. Be honest. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it's kind of happens. Okay? So here, there's, before you can get to the explanation, there has to be this, this episode where some people mocked. They mocked it. Now, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and you do something significant in ministry for the Holy Spirit of God, some people are going to be amazed by it. And some people were amazed, weren't they? But there's always going to be someone who's a naysayer. Someone who says, oh, yeah, look what, you know, look all of, you know, how, how dumb, how bogus, how, uh, how short-sighted or how immature or how much the church is just a crutch to hold people up, you know. And I, I say, anybody that tells me that, I say, no, the church is not a crutch. The church is a hospital. You know, we need more than a crutch. We need a makeover. We need a, a, a surgery. And so the church is a hospital. It's kind of like uh, the teacher who was doing her best to discredit the Bible. And uh, as she's talking with her students there, uh, she says, let me prove this to you. You know, archaeological evidence, and we have some scientific evidence of this, uh, that says that uh, when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, it was really only six inches deep. You know, it's only about that deep. And so, of course, anybody could cross over that. And a student from the back jumped up and said, man, that is a miraculous thing, isn't it? And she goes, no, that discredits the miracle. That discredits the miracle. No, no, you don't understand, teacher, that God used six inches of water 
to drown the entire Egyptian army. <laughs> you know, some people are going to be naysayers. Some people are going to wonder about that. Now, how many of you have subscribed to Creation Magazine? Okay, do that. Creation Magazine, a number of years ago, they did an archaeological thing on the Red Sea. And there are they're calcified, I don't want to say calcified, but, and I want to say fossilized, but I do want to say when things go under the water, they get barnacles and stuff on them. And they have these barnacle formations in a circle with spokes going out from it. And they say, and of course, they won't let you excavate or do anything in the Red Sea, but they say that they're, that's probably evidence of the wheels of the Egyptian chariots that when they sunk, they went down there and they got barnacleized, and now they're, they're down there and they have these formations. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Okay, so um, be heads up. And if you don't get Creation Magazine, I want you to, to think about subscribing to that. You can get an online version. You can do all kinds of things. Just go to creation.com, I think. Who knows? Okay, now, these guys mocked. So Peter gets up and he feels like he needs to address this thing. He needs to explain what's going on. These people are, are speaking in tongues, they're doing some, some stuff, and people are hearing it, so they're amazed. But the other people that don't understand, they go, you know, if you're in a, in a situation where you have an apostle speaking and the Parthians can hear it and understand it, but you're a Mede, you go, huh, I don't understand that at all. They're just babbling. And so they could mock about that. They could, they could do that and make fun of it. So Peter gets up and he says some things. In verses 17 through 21 of Acts chapter 2, and I forgot to put those verses in there for you, so just jot down 17 through 21 there. It says, in the last days, God says. Now remember, we talked about the prophecy of Joel. This is the prophecy of Joel. Okay, Joel has prophesied this hundreds of years before, and now it says, in the last days, this is what Joel tells the people that God has said. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Peter here enumerates several things that will be evidences or that will be products of the Holy Spirit's ability to dwell in the life of believers. The first one is prophecy. Okay? He says there's going to be prophecy. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament, you know that prophecy is what Jeremiah did and Ezekiel did and all those guys. And what they did was, and and sometimes we associate prophecy with telling the future. This is what's going to happen in the future. But if you really look at the Old Testament prophets, what they did was they corrected the people. They said, this is the word of God. The word of God says that we should worship him only. Now, in, in Israel and Judah, they had worshipped foreign gods. And so there was going to be a consequence for that. And the prophet reminded them of the consequence that God said would happen. He says, if you don't worship me, if you worship foreign gods, there's going to be foreign nations that come in and overtake you. They'll take you hostage. They'll take you as hostages back to their country. That's going to happen. And so we kind of think of prophecy as telling the future. Well, it's really spelling out the consequences of God for not following him. Okay, there's going to be consequences. Now, how many of you get to choose how you live life? 
Raise your hands. You do. You get to choose how you live life. You can choose your lifestyle. You can choose however you want to do things. You can choose how you respond to people. You can choose uh, to a large degree what you're going to do for work. You can choose, can't you? Now, there's one thing that you cannot choose. What is that? Your consequences. Consequences. In our day and age today, in our society, we're trying to remove consequences from everything. Have you noticed that? Trying to remove consequences. Everything's okay. And what that generates is a society of chaos. There's no consequences. I can do whatever I want. So therefore, if it harms you, oh, well, you know, survival of the fittest. And so we, we claim all of that. And we have to be very careful about where we go with that because we have to understand basically that God determines the consequences for our behavior. Okay? And that's why he tells the children of Israel, if you follow me, you'll receive blessings. If you don't follow me, there's going to be bad stuff that happens to you. That's natural consequences. It's not because I'm unhappy and don't love you. It's because there are consequences for failure to follow. Okay, so that's what prophecy does. Prophecy declares the word of God and it explains the consequences for not following. So could you be a prophet? Yeah, you can foretell the word of God, right? You can tell it forth. You don't have to predict futures. But you can kind of say, you know, I've seen this happen to the children of Israel, and I don't think we're too much different. So if we don't follow God, we'll probably get some negative consequences. Makes some sense. Okay. He also says there's visions. Their young men will see visions. Now, here's what it means. Visions are something appears vividly and credibly to the mind, although not actually present but implying the influence of some divine or supernatural power or agency. People can see stuff. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that says, you know what I see for our future? You know what I see for the future of the United States of America? You know what I see God doing here? You know what I see God doing at 9-11? You know what I see God doing there? You know, some of that could be visions, you know, not actual, not being there, but having this ability, this supernatural ability to be able to see and to interpret the signs of the times. Back in uh, 9-11, what do you think God was doing? You know, when the, when the planes hit the Twin Towers and stuff? Well, God's saying three things, I think. You know, because I think God gave people vision to see. Number one, don't trust your money. Okay, the World Trade Center, you know, the Twin Towers are just the epitome of banking uh, stuff. Okay, number two, don't trust your military. The Pentagon was hit. Don't trust your military. Number three, don't trust your government. And I think we should trust our government. Don't get me wrong there. But don't trust your government beyond what you trust me. And so he's saying, be careful what you trust. Be careful what you trust, because I'm showing you how fragile each one of those institutions is. Okay, your military, your government, your, your finances, that's all real fragile and could go one way or the other. Okay, so be careful. So there's visionary people that, are help, that help us to interpret the signs of the times. Now, it also says that they're dreams. Okay, it says uh, your old men will dream dreams. Okay, now, if you read the Old Testament very much, you realize that in the Old Testament, a lot of guys would go to sleep and have dreams and visions of what God wanted to do or what God wanted to say. And so pay attention to your dreams. Have you ever had dreams and you go, I think there's something to that. Sometimes it's just a bad pizza, let's be honest. You know, and that makes you have a bad dream or whatever. But sometimes I think that God can speak to us through our dreams, and we need to be maybe uh, cognizant of that. So one of the things I encourage people to do is to have a little notebook and a pencil by your bed. 
Have you ever gone to bed and had some of the best thoughts you've ever had in your life? You know, just as you're getting ready to nod off, you're thinking and you go, man, that's worth remembering. That, that's significant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that down tomorrow morning. And then you wake up in the morning and you don't have the foggiest idea what it was. But you do remember, man, there was something there. So have a, have a little notebook by there and, and write that stuff down. Interact with God on those kinds of things. Okay? He says also that uh, I will show wonders in the heavens above. I will show wonders in the heavens above. Now, this wonders, you know, in the ancient times uh, was a portent of what might um, be happening and the arrangement of planets and stuff uh, and how that might have some effect on the earth. Okay, a comet. Uh, how many of you have heard, heard the, the report? I think it was several weeks ago about an asteroid that was going to hit the earth in like a couple of days. Did you hear about that? a comet or something, I don't know. Uh, but I'm thinking, you know, if and, and it's been traveling for how many hundreds of thousands of years, they say, and it, now it's, it's you know, going to hit us in a couple of days or going to come very close to us in a couple of days. And I'm thinking, if it's been traveling that long and we're just finding out about it now, really? You know, but that's what, there's a lot of astrological stuff that God uses in order to convey what he wants us to know. And so we need to be heads up to that. He also says that there's wonders in heavens above, signs on the earth below. And he gives some evidence here. He said, blood and fire, billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Those things are going to happen before Jesus returns. But these signs are events with very special meaning. In fact, it's assigned with supernatural, divine meaning. There's going to be some stuff that happens uh, through people who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And then last, but certainly not least, and the one that we have all experienced, is salvation. He concludes this with, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, be rescued. Now, I always, you know, when I grew up, you know, people, oh, are you going to get saved? Have you gotten saved? And I always thought, saved is kind of a weird word. You know, saved is, you know, what do I need to be saved from? Now, that was the question I was asked because I was kind of ignorant about my condition. And I want you to know that we need to be rescued. We need to be saved from ourselves, from our sinful self. Left to our own devices, we can run amok, can't we? Uh, 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 here, yeah, anybody with me? Have you ever run amok? Yeah, I've run amok. And uh, I needed to be rescued from that thought process and that way of viewing life that caused me to run amok, to be independent, to be uh, all about myself. So salvation comes when we recognize our condition. Okay, and if, you, if I could use a church word, it would be selfish. You know, I'm basically selfish. I want what I want. Okay, don't you? Okay, and don't you think you deserve to get it? Yeah, we can be kind of selfish, can't we? That's evidence of our sinful condition. Selfishness is evidence of our sinful condition. I want it, I'll get it, and if I have to take it from you, so much the better. Because after all, it's the survival of the fittest. And I plan to be the fittest. And so we have this sinful nature that goes on, and we need to be rescued from that. Why? Because we're here not to, not to, say, not to, to be the top dog, but our, we're here to be the servant of God. And so we have to be rescued from all that mentality and all of that stuff. So salvation comes through the, the advent of the Holy Spirit living in the lives of believers.